All right. Um, perfect. Well, good morning, and I'm excited to uh, break into the Word with you uh, to dive into the book of Hebrews. Uh, I'm especially excited to develop a wonderful concept uh, for you concerning the biblical teaching of Jesus' priesthood. Um, if for nothing else, then for the potential that it has for making great positive changes in our lives. And it, and it does. It, it also happens to be the very same wonderful concept that the writer himself brings to this congregation to prevent them from drifting and in some cases to, to rescue them from drifting. Okay, you say, you have my attention. What is the wonderful concept that Jesus' priesthood uh, has for us that seems so revolutionary? Well, I'm glad you asked. It is specifically that Jesus' priesthood is superlative. It's the best. It's the greatest that there is. Unmatched, consummate, first-rate, unrivaled. That's the great news, and that's the concept that will revolutionize our lives. I'll explain as we go on. As far as priesthoods go, though, Jesus' priesthood surpasses them all. And that's really the point that we need to, to hold on to. There is really no comparison between what Jesus has now as, as his priesthood, his royal priesthood, and any other priesthood that has ever come before. But I want to get ahead of uh, ourselves, and I want us to understand something about priesthoods. They've all been an important part of the religious of religions throughout time, both ancient as well as modern. But that's only because God had established the priesthood long ago, or the basis for the priesthood long ago. Like so many things that God set in motion, a sinful world abused and degraded it, turning it into something very different from what God intended it to be. So by the time God established the Levitical priesthood through Moses, there had already been corrupt priesthoods for centuries, complete with temple prostitutes and child sacrifice. It was at the establishment of Israel as God's chosen people that God had to set up in detail the proper priesthood. And when he did, he set the record straight, bringing it back to the way everything used to be and should be. And it proved to be far different in many ways from the pagan priesthoods all around. More than that, we might say unequivocally that it was the best that there was as far as priesthoods go. It was the best because it was the only one that God appointed and approved. If anyone was going to draw near to God, you see, it would, be, it would have to be through God's mediating and Levitical priesthood through nothing else. That was the only acceptable way. It was the best there was. But as great as it was, it wasn't to be the greatest. The end of all priesthoods, if you will. It was not, it was not to be the superlative priesthood as much as the Jews in the first century would have found that extremely hard to accept, and they would. No, God never intended the Levitical priesthood to be the end-all and be-all be of priesthoods. God had other plans, and, and they included a better priesthood, the best. In fact, 
the best that would ever be, the one that would end all priesthoods for good. And that is what we need to consider this morning, the superlative nature of Jesus' priesthood, the fact that it was and is the best. Now, I have to admit a certain amount of hesitation as I do this this morning with you, because the words that uh, we all would ordinarily use and you would expect me to use to describe Jesus' priesthood could actually raise doubts in your minds when they should rid you of all doubts. What do you mean? Well, this is thanks to our culture, which has hijacked these particular words and has infused them with suspicion. So by using them, I do run the risk of misleading you. So I'm going to do my best not to. For example, if I said that Jesus' priesthood is new and improved, I'm not sure what goes through your mind when I say new and improved. Maybe maybe that puts you on guard rather than puts you at ease. I know that when I think of new and improved, I think of the pocket hose. That failed invention advertised incessantly on TV and radio. The pocket hose is a modern marvel. It's super lightweight, easy to handle, convenient to hang or store anywhere, even in your pocket, hence pocket hose. But it expands to several feet, uh, feet when you turn on the water. And when you shove the water off, it shrinks back to its original mini size, practically putting itself away. Best of all, it never kinks or twists or tangles like ordinary hoses, and all just for $19.99. It's, it's, it's all sounds so wonderful until you take it home and hook it up to your spigot. And when you do, water doesn't just come out of the other end of the hose, but from various other parts in the middle as well. Okay. It's then that you learn that new means nothing more than novel. And improved here, in this sense, is not in the sense of superior, like in the superior way it channels water, putting to shame even the mighty aqueducts of ancient Rome that stretched for miles and still stands in defiance of the harsh terrain and elements through which it runs. No. No, improved in this context of the pocket hose means that it does what traditional hoses don't, expands and contracts, coils and puts itself away. After, of course, it leaks all over the place if it doesn't first burst into a hundred pieces from the water pressure. How about guaranteed for life? Now that's a phrase that's guaranteed to sh sh send your, your blood pressure soaring. Guaranteed, I think we understand. It's the for life part that really adds an uncomfortable element of doubt. Who's, whose life are we talking about? The consumers, the product, or the life of the business that sells the product. If it breaks, can, can I bring it back no matter how long I've owned it and, and get a new one? See, in the end, lifetime warranty means really whatever the company decides it means. Now let me reclaim those words and, and those phrases and use them with their original intended meaning. Here goes. Jesus' priesthood is certainly new. It's new because it belongs to a new covenant, which we read all about Jesus inaugurating in, in our scripture passage in Matthew 26. It is, the, it is new because it's also the only one of its kind. There has never been one like this before, and there will never be one like it again. 
New in this context really means then unique. Jesus' priesthood is unique. It is also a vast improvement on the old Levitical priesthood, as we've seen already in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, and we'll give more evidence of this in verses 11 to 28. It is also guaranteed for the life of the priest himself to keep doing what what only it is designed to do, which is why there will never be another one like it or a better one to replace it. So what we have before us then in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 28, is a priesthood that saves sinners, fulfills prophecy, lasts forever, introduces a better hope, rests on a divine oath, serves a better covenant, offers ongoing intercession, and is supernatural. That is the priesthood that is new and improved and guaranteed for life. That declaration really sums up this section. It is the main idea, if you will. And if you're not there yet, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 7. Find your way to verses 11:28 and have your hand there at the ready. This passage is certainly a wonderful passage, and it has a wonderful truth that holds a great application for us. But the Jewish Christians in the first century the first century church, might not have welcomed this truth like you're welcoming it. And those among us who were, or among them rather, who were not born again, no doubt struggled with this truth. Let me tell you why. They struggled because they grew up with the mistaken notion that the Levitical priesthood was it. It it, it was the best it would be or would have been unthinkable to them to suggest that it had a shelf life or an obsolescence that God built into it from the very beginning. They would be horrified to hear something like that. With all the detailed and ornate temple furniture, the ornate priestly garb, the the rigorous requirements and designated lifestyle for priests, all the incense and the smoke and the blood, the continuous offerings that had to be made, the monotony of it all, the fire from heaven that would come down and consume the sacrifice, and much more. So elaborate, so distinct, so holy, and so lethal to those who might abuse it or mishandle even one aspect of it, wittingly or unwittingly. It is beyond belief that something like that, that kind of priesthood, could ever come to an end. Really, that's what they thought. It was the heart of the worship of Israel, you see. How could one ever speak of it as outliving its usefulness or even being weak? You ought to know that those were fighting words to any Jew who was not born again in the first century. They took a rather dim view of anyone who talked that way about their temple and about their priesthood. It was the trumped-up accusations that Jesus was going to destroy the temple that moved his mock trial before Caiaphas to the next step, remember? Attacking the temple with its priesthood and its sacrifices. That's what eventually moved it to the next step. And we find in Acts 21 that the the occasion 
uh, made by the Jews against Paul, that he desecrated the temple by bringing Gentiles into it, is what actually got him arrested. So when I say those were fighting words, I, I mean it. You don't ever talk down the priesthood or the temple uh, to first century Jews. That just wouldn't have gone well. Now, I did say that this jealous and volatile way of, of thinking with regard to the temple and the priesthood on the part of the religious establishment for years, long before Jesus' day and long after it, was a mistaken notion. I said that, and I mean it. It's true. It was founded on a complete misinterpretation of the Torah. God never, ever intended the Levitical priesthood to continue forever or to be all that the Jews in Jesus' day thought it was. They were completely misunderstanding everything. He intended for it to be replaced at the right time with a better priesthood that would last forever and accomplish better things. And it teaches that in the uh, Hebrew Bible. So the writer's approach to combating the erroneous interpretations of the Torah held by the Jews in his time, including some of the more bizarre views from various Jewish sects that those in this congregation seem to gravitate toward, is to spell out the original intent of the Torah with regard to the Levitical priesthood and to another order of priesthood that would replace and surpass it. That is his goal. That's what he does here. And we also mustn't forget then that the whole point of the writer taking the time to labor and write this masterpiece of a letter that shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the legitimate Son of God who establishes a new covenant and a new priesthood is ultimately to win weak-minded and compromised Christians over to a better walk with Christ. Remember, we said that last time. As well as to prevent those who are on the verge of trusting Christ from drifting away into error. So let's remind ourselves of the practical insight that we gained from this first part, we gained from the first part of the chapter before we even dig into the rich text that the Holy Spirit has left for us now. It, is, it certainly applies to the second half. It is this, point drifters to Jesus and to depend on his high priestly ministry. It was the same for verses 1 to 10, and it's the same from verses, for verses 11 to 28. The text urges us to follow the example of this writer-pastor and champion Bible doctrine especially the doctrine of Christ in these last days, and even more especially in our American culture, where the body of Christ at large faces a season of apostasy and compromise, as, as Michael mentioned just before he read the scripture reading. The need for us to point people to the, in the churches to Jesus, that they may consider, with your help, a deeper Christology, has perhaps never been greater in the brief history of the church in America than now, where there is a great lack of understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we stated last time, this is really the writer's overall purpose of the whole letter. He practically opens the letter with this purpose. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
consider him, he says. And then he closes out the letter, pretty much, with the same uh, with the same appeal. Consider him, chapter 12, verse 1, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's why you need to consider a deeper Christology, especially in our day and age, where Christ is sorely misunderstood. It's no surprise that in a context of spurring spiritual, spiritually lethargic Christians to run a better race, the most effective thing to do is to point them to Jesus, the originator and perfecter of their faith, who is a model for their endurance, a model for their faithfulness. And we should do the same whenever we can with those who are in, the, in our circles of influence for Christ today. All right, that's the practical side. We'll return to it toward the end. But let's dive right into our section then. We're in Hebrews 7. And so as not to lose the flow of the argument up to this point, you might remember that the writer uh, has just called his audience to consider Jesus royal priesthood, specifically in contrast with the Levitical priesthood that they've obviously, obviously been gravitating toward for some time now. So he makes the point in verse 10 for the preeminence of Jesus' priesthood. Remember, that's where we left off. The preeminence of Jesus' priesthood. And by preeminence, we mean, of course, the best there is, the greatest or superlative. It is unsurpassed in nature and in its accomplishments. And this morning, we continue in the writer's discussion of this marvelous priesthood and we consider further why it is superlative. So then, what does make it the best? What makes it the best? Well, the writer tells us in verses 11 to 28. And <clears throat> it's rather a, 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 a lengthy passage, but I want to assure you it's not a complicated one. You may be finding it a bit deep. Maybe you did the, the, the last time we were together in verses 1 to 10, and the writer did say that it is meaty, and he was concerned that his congregation might not grasp it, but I think you will. So stick with me as we go through this. We consider this text, and as we do, we'll encounter some repeat. And that's understandable. Many times when driving home our view, whether it's in a letter or in a verbal discussion, oral discussion, we we give as many sound and irrefutable arguments as we possibly can, but then we find it necessary to restate some of them, even if it's to show the cohesiveness of our argument. That is how everything is interconnected and, and related. So the major idea that recurs here, the one that's repeated often, is that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. We're going to see it again. We saw it already in verses 1 to 10. We'll see it crop up again. And of all the stark differences between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, the eternal aspect is probably the most important. Why do I say that? While Jesus' priesthood offers benefits and blessings to us that the old one couldn't, wonderful benefits, really there, there are no words to describe how truly wonderful they are for every believer. There are, they are no good to us 
if they come from a priesthood that doesn't last. That's why the eternality or the eternal aspect is very important and why he repeats it. Eternal. It is eternal and it is lasting. And if that's the case, then so, so are its wonderful benefits to us. So with that said, we consider now the various aspects of blessing that are unique to Jesus' priesthood. So here we go. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus' priesthood alone secures God's redemption for sinners. It secures redemption for sinners. Read, uh, if, let, let's read verses 11 to 12. So if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priesthood to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So what's the author arguing here? We're saying that Jesus' priesthood is the only one that secures redemption for sinners. How do we get that from these two verses? Well, before we can answer that, let's define some of its important elements. The first is the word perfection at the beginning at verse 11. The Greek word behind this translation occurs elsewhere only uh, in Luke, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament in, in Luke. The only other time, Luke chapter 1. It might be translated there, best fulfillment. Now, Elizabeth blesses Mary for believing in the fulfillment of the Lord's promise that she would bear the Christ. So it has the idea of fulfillment, not perfection. But in our text, it has more the idea of making people who are served by this particular priesthood perfect before God. It means being made perfect before God, perfect in the sense of acceptable, justified before God, redeemed, having communion with him. In fact, it is, the, it is really another way of referring to salvation. In this case, then, the writer argues that what Jesus' priesthood can do, that the, that the deficient Levitical priesthood could never do, is to redeem an individual and establish communion between that person and God. Perfection here is salvation, and that is the business of Jesus' priesthood. The second element that we need to, uh, to understand before we <clears throat> dig into this, uh, in verse 11, <clears throat> uh, that you might tend to uh, misunderstand is the parenthetical phrase that is in most uh, Bible versions set off by parentheses. Uh, it reads this way in the New American Standard Bible, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. Now, the New American Standard Bible's translation of this parenthetical thought is very awkward and misleading. It's a very awkward translation of the Greek. It, it, it makes it seem as though the law is founded on the priesthood, but it's really the other way around. The priesthood was founded on the law. The law is what defines the operations of the priesthood. So a better, a better rendering of this phrase would be, and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood. Reading it all together with the first part of the verse, it would go this way. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, 
comma, and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood. Uh, that parenthetical thought reminds the reader that God's law established the Levitical priesthood and outlined it. It outlined how it would operate. And it's a very important piece of information that he's going to draw on when he gets to verse 12. So hold that thought for just a few minutes. With those two elements understood, and in light of the fuller discussion of Melchizedek from the first part of the chapter, we can get into the thrust of what the writer is arguing. Essentially, he says that if the Levitical priesthood, which was set up by the law, was designed to secure a person's salvation, well, then there would be no need for it ever to be dissolved and replaced with a priesthood from another order, would there? Never. If, on the other hand, it wasn't, and another priesthood was needed to replace it, well, then there would necessarily have to be a change in God's law. And here we see now the purpose of that parenthetical thought about the law establishing the priesthood. You change the priesthood, there necessarily has to be a change in the law in order to justify it. So there's no change or changing the priesthood without changing the law first that established it. That's the idea. Now, that's a sound argument that religious leaders of Jesus' day would wholeheartedly believe, as did some of the Jewish sects that caught the curiosity of this particular church that Hebrews goes out to. Jews believed, to a large extent, that they were saved by the law. Make no mistake about that. They were saved by the law, which included the sacrificial system. Offering sacrifices, receiving circumcision, obedience to the law, all of that was what saved the Jew from the Jew's point of view. So this argument makes complete sense, if it were true. But it's not. It wasn't true. Religious leaders, as I pointed out, somewhere between Malachi and the birth of Jesus, got it wrong. Contrary to what they believed, the Old Testament never taught this, ever. That's right, the Levitical priesthood was never designed to accomplish the redemption and salvation of souls, much less the law being established to save anybody. You'll notice that there is a rhetorical element to the writer's question in verse 11, as if to say this, if perfection came by the priesthood and it didn't, that's the idea, once again, God never intended the priesthood or the law to accomplish salvation. God ordained this priestly institution to be short-lived. Another priesthood of a different order that was designed to accomplish salvation would replace it. That, of course, was Jesus' priesthood. Now, I think you're tracking with me, and maybe some of you are even saying, but what about the bit about changing the law? How do you get around that? Well, we don't have to get around it. But you say, well, where in the Levitical Code does it make provision for another and better order of priesthood? It doesn't. And that's because God intended for that part of the law, the Levitical Code, also to be short-lived. There would be a change, and a change of covenants, and a change of priesthood that would come by the word of God. 
It would come by the word of God. And that brings us to the next line of argument. Jesus' priesthood was prophesied. It was prophesied. By the word of God, verses 13 and 14, the evidence that a change in the law regarding the priesthood was needed to allow for Messiah, who was not from the tribe of Levi, Levi, but from Judah, to be the new priest of God's people is God's prophetic word. It's there. That is essentially what verses 13 and 14 say. Let's look at it. For the one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to, uh, with reference to which Moses said nothing concerning priests. So one about whom it is said, that is Jesus, has the power to re- redeem sinners and establish their communion with God in, in, in his new priesthood. His tribe, Judah, was not a tribe of priests, though. No one from Judah ever officiated as priests at the altar. And that's because Moses never mentioned anything in the law about Judah or any other tribe outside of Levi as the tribe from which priests would come. But as I say, God did. God did. And we saw in our last study that God spoke through David the words of Psalm 110 and addresses the one of whom it is said, Jesus, in verse 4 of that psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is. We know that David wrote this psalm, but the Holy Spirit moved him to write these words. They tell us that the Lord swore an oath to establish his anointed one in, the, in a royal priesthood forever. It's noteworthy, beloved, that David wrote this while the Levitical law was still in effect. So essentially, God's word here changes the law and brought about a new order. And he would actually bring that about in reality in, in the time that he had ordained. Again, God never meant the law and its regulation regarding the Levitical priesthood to last forever. It, along with the Levitical priesthood itself, had a built-in obsolescence, much like our cell phones do. Christ fulfilled the law, and this part of the law, and with the advent of the new covenant, changed the order of priesthood forever. And that brings us to the next aspect. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Here it is. Jesus' priesthood is eternal, verses 15 to 17. The writer says, and this is clear, clearer still, if another priest arised according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a law on physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God established the Levitical priesthood that would be based on physical requirement. That is, priests had to be from the tribe of Levi. As a result, it could not, it could not be an enduring institution for that very reason, because it depended on men, and specifically those men from the tribe of Levi, 
and specifically those men from the tribe of Levi who were qualified. So without them, the institution dies out. But God anointed one, Messiah, Jesus our Lord, who was not related to the tribe of Levi. He belonged to another priestly order, to his own. And he needs no one to succeed him because his priesthood is kept going by the power of his indestructible life. He is the Son of God, God himself, and therefore he is eternal. John records the words of Christ, you might remember, in the book of Revelation, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is this eternality of Jesus that assures his enduring priesthood. It lasts forever because he is eternal. Number five, fifth aspect, Jesus' priesthood introduces a better hope. How does hope factor into this argument? Remember our definition of hope? It really is a certainty. Biblical hope has no element of chance in it at all. It's a certainty. It refers to something that is sure to happen. So let's read verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is the nullification of a former commandment because of its weakness and usefulness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we come near to God. So the writer draws another contrast between these two priesthoods. The Levitical priesthood couldn't secure a sinner's redemption, the salvation of his soul. It was powerless to do that. At best, at best, it could only point the way to the better priesthood that was to come, Jesus' priesthood, which would achieve redemption and salvation. So if the Levitical priesthood was just a shadow of the reality of Jesus' priesthood, then it would necessarily become useless once Jesus' priesthood became reality. I love that. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says in his... um, Uh, excellent commentary on Hebrews at this point um, when he talks about uh, the hope mentioned here, uh, talks about the practical aspects of it. He says this, um, by comparison, the hope of the old is far inferior to that of the new. The contrast is between the promise and the fulfillment the shadow and the substance, the weak and the powerful, the transient and the permanent, the imperfect and the perfect. As chapter 11 below will show, the saints of the Old Testament were men and women of hope as well. Indeed, because they, the, their assurance of, uh, because rather they were men and women of faith, for by definition uh, there, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But their hope, concentrated itself in the expectation of the coming of him who as the mediator of the new covenant and their priest forever would at last take away the sin of the world. Whereas we are privileged actually to live in the new age in which he who is our Melchizedek has superseded Levi and his order. Like them, we too are pilgrims. And in company with them, we shall participate in the glorious and eternal consummation 
of Christ's kingdom. But through him who has, has now come, we enjoy the access into the presence of God himself, which was not open to them when they were pilgrims on this earth. The person who still holds to or wishes to restore the shadows of the law, Calvin says, not only obscures the glory of Christ, but also deprives us of a tremendous blessing in that he puts a distinct, a distance rather between us and God to approach, uh, whom, uh, to approach whom freedom and, and uh, has been granted us, uh, that has been granted us by the gospel. Hughes uh, is right in, in his contrast and his comparison. We enjoy a far better priesthood than they did. Jesus replaced the priesthood. He established his own order in which only he could officiate. And because he is eternal and his priesthood is enduring, only he can offer us this hope and certainty of a lasting, intimate communion with God. Number six, Jesus' priesthood is as irrevocable as the oath God took to establish it. It is as irrevocable as the oath God took to establish it. This is verses 20 and 21. We just finished talking about our hope in Christ's priestly work, a certainty that we can have a relationship with God that is personal and growing through the ongoing mediation and an intercession of Christ. Well, that hope is grounded in the fact that Jesus' priesthood is eternal, as we said, or enduring. Everything, really, that we can say about Jesus' priesthood is validated by the fact that his priesthood is eternal. We pointed that out already as well. If Jesus' priesthood doesn't last, then all of its blessings are for naught. And if we've been led to believe this because Jesus is himself eternal, we might also believe that it is true on the basis of something else. What is that? Well, in verses 20 and 21, the author tells us that Jesus' priesthood is enduring not only because Jesus is eternal, but because that priesthood was founded by God on an oath and that priesthood uh, was, to, was established to redeem life and save it, that we might enjoy a relationship with God in heaven someday. It is because God made a binding promise, an oath, that this is so. We read in verse 20, And to the extent that it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one whom, whom said, who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. The Levitical Code mentions the establishment and regulations for the Levitical priesthood, but it was never sealed with an oath, a promise. It was just stated in the Levitical law. This is how it's going to be, and this is how it operates. God never promised that it would it would secure redemption, and he never promised it would last forever. But Jesus' priesthood, while there's no mention of it in the Levitical Code for priests, and we know why, was established by God with a solemn oath. 
God promises that it would be enduring and therefore it would be able to bring certain hope to those who are on the receiving end of its redemptive blessings and benefits. Number seven, Jesus' priesthood serves a better covenant. This is in verse 22, and verse 22 is the completion, really, of verse 21. To the extent that God established Jesus as our high priest with a binding oath, he also, at the same time, made Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It says, by the, by the same extent, Jesus also has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is the first time in the letter <clears throat> that the writer introduces the word covenant. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he's going to go on <clears throat> uh, to develop that more fully later in the book. In fact, he'll mention it in almost every chapter from here to the end of the book, with the exception of chapter 11. God cut several covenants with men over the centuries, and a couple with uh, the second member of the Trinity as well. What is in view here are two covenants. One is the Old Covenant, which is really the Mosaic Covenant that God made with the nation of which Moses was the mediator. It came with the law, as well as Levitical code for the priesthood. It was during this covenant that God also cut another one. One which Messiah would be both the guarantor of and the sacrifice that was needed to ratify it. The classic Old Testament passage that prophesies this other new covenant is Jeremiah 31. Listen to verses 31 to 34. Behold, the Lord says... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will, they will, not, te they will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will already know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. That is the new covenant that has been prophesied in the old. While the old was still in operation, Jesus himself inaugurated that very covenant on the eve of his death, specifically at the Lord's Supper, when he raised the cup that was his blood of the covenant, the new one. It went into effect at his death, and he became the guarantor of it upon his resurrection. Why is this covenant better than the one before? Well, we'll get into the details of that later on in the book for, for now. Suffice it to say that the promises of the old covenant were founded on the expectation of the Messiah's coming. 
while new and, and better promises of the covenant are, are founded in the reality of Messiah who has come. That is, much of, much of what characterizes the old covenant, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the promises that God would give his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, um, and, and extend, their, extend them with uh, every tri- people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, rather, that he would dwell in their midst and that he would be their God and they would be his people, that Messiah would come to redeem his people and rule. Many of these promises found their fulfillment in the finished work of Jesus at his first coming. Once he came and he fulfilled the law, he then established the new covenant with better promises. They're better because they were made not in the shadow of his coming, as the promises of the old were, but in the reality of the presence of his presence in the world, the fact that he was there. And these promises will be fulfilled in full upon the Messiah's second coming. Well, that brings us then to the last aspect of all of these, and that is that Jesus' priesthood offers ongoing intercession. Well, actually, second to the last one, It offers ongoing intercession. Unlike the former priest, Jesus lived forever and has a permanent priesthood that is able to keep completely those that it saves through the ongoing intercession, his ongoing intercession. Beginning at verse 23 down to 25, he says, The former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. Jesus, on the other hand, because because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. I love this one. This is one that is uh, often ignored or, or, or um, not understood by, by many in the church today. Verse 23 establishes what we already know. Jesus' priesthood is permanent because he himself lives forever, unlike the Levitical priest who eventually died and needed to be replaced. What the writer adds to this is another consequence of the permanent priesthood, and that is this. Jesus' constant intercession before the throne of God on our behalf keeps us saved. Keeps us saved. The consequence of Jesus' indestructible life and permanent priesthood, verse 24, is his ability to save us completely, verse 25. The word complete has probably a temporal idea. That would mean forever or for all time. He is able to save us eternally. So the idea is that Jesus keeps us saved forever. Because he is constantly at the presence of God's right hand, he can constantly appeal to God on our behalf for saving mercy and enabling grace based on the sacrifice of himself. Verse 25 is the writer's reference to Jesus' actual ability to save forever. And by the way, that is, that is not a potential ability. That is an actual one. Jesus literally saved us by his death, not merely made it possible for salvation to occur. And by the same token, he also 
keeps us literally saved by his ongoing intercession. And that is a remarkable thing. What a grand ministry his priesthood is. Finally then, Jesus' priesthood is supernatural. The final aspect that sets Jesus as superior to the priests and even high priests of the Old Covenant is that he himself is divine. Listen for this characteristic uh, of Jesus that the writer highlights in his contrast to human priests in verses 26 to 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who is not only who, who has no, uh, no daily need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of, of the oath which came after the law appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. The writer has argued for the legitimacy of another order of priesthood, and we can see why. This priest himself is as different from the Levitical priests as his order is from theirs. He's unique. He's divine. Jesus, the high priest of the new covenant, is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And as a result, he doesn't need to make sacrifice for himself. And the one sacrifice he did make, he made on our behalf, and that was for all time, once for all time, for the penalty of our sin. The Levitical Code appointed only weak men, but the Son of God rises above them and was established as high priest to replace them as our priest, our divine priest. He was established by an oath by God that came after the law, indicating that there would be a change. I want to say, in closing, that at the beginning of our study, I pointed out that this powerful text, and I'm very, I was very excited about to, to develop this aspect of the superlative nature of Jesus' priesthood with you, is exciting to me for a number of reasons, but certainly because it has the potential of making great positive changes in our lives. The better you understand what the writer is saying here, then the stronger and more confident will your walk be. There are many, but I might categorize these positive and great changes under two categories, just two, two headings. The first category or heading is this, um, and that is that we benefit from this particular teaching as beneficiaries of Jesus' priesthood. We are beneficiaries of Jesus' priesthood. If, if you read this and you understand it, you understand what it is that you receive, these blessings. You're a beneficiary. Jesus is the benefactor, you're the beneficiary. We derive such great benefits from Jesus, our high priest. And I wonder if you have really thought through the importance of Jesus' high priesthood. If you realize that everything, and I'm not exaggerating, everything in our Christian lives is impacted in one way or another by Jesus' ministry as high priest. It is, it's true. The writer says, 
that that uh, that Jesus is our high priest, and because he is our high priest, he can sympathize with us, and his sympathizing with us makes his high priest or his his priestly ministry very effective. He can sympathize with you. He knows what you're going through. He knows how you feel, and he can meet you at your point of need. We pray to the Lord for all kinds of things, which means that our 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 Lord is our priest. And we pray for mercy, we pray for grace, we pray for strength. And the things that he grants us, he grants us in the position of a priest. Our assurance of salvation rests, as we just said, on his ongoing intercession as a priest. His priestly ministry on our behalf also assures us of a better hope. And our as our priest, he is the minister of a better covenant to which we belong and enjoy its, its better promises. Well, I could go on, but I think you get the idea. There, there is a reason, you see, why the topic of Jesus' priesthood occupies the most amount of space in the book of Hebrews. If there is one aspect of the Lord's person that minister, ministers to us the most, it is the aspect of his priesthood. And that's why this passage and the succeeding chapters or successive chapters to come about his priesthood are so very important to us. The second category, the second way in which really we derive benefit from this is as administrators of Jesus' priesthood. We receive benefits as as beneficiaries of Jesus' priesthood, but we also benefit as administrators of Jesus' priesthood. You say, what do you mean, as administrators? Well, simply this. We are priests, according to the New Testament. All who are born again are priests. This is the priesthood of all believers. That's the doctrine. We are a kingdom of priests, like Israel was supposed to be, but failed miserably. Peter tells us, in no uncertain terms, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is the church. If you read the rest of 1 Peter from chapter 2 to the very end, he says this, by the way, this declaration in in verse 9. If you read from verse 9 to the very end of the book, he tells you in all kinds of ways, or the kinds of ways in which we as priests are supposed to conduct ourselves. It's a very important and, and helpful epistle. And this is really what I'm getting at. The writer of Hebrews carries out his priestly duties himself by ministering to a a drifting body. And in that way, we, like him, and really like our Lord, have a responsibility as priests to minister to those in our circle of influence, whether it is our spouse, our children, our fellow believers, even the unsaved. For Jesus' priesthood saves and keeps keeps saving those who draw near to him. So the bottom line here is, is this. We, as representatives of our great high priest, are priests ourselves. And we sympathize with those who are weak. We come alongside those who are caught in sin and we restore them gently. We are patient. We minister the word of God to others. And in so doing, we imitate our great high priest. We become administers of his priesthood. 
This is why Hebrews is so timely for us in our season of apostasy and compromise. There is no better preventative and no better cure for drifting in the church than to point people in the church to Jesus that they may consider him with your help. Consider a deeper Christology and understand how they are beneficiaries of his priesthood and how they are administers of it as well. Whether there is a departure from orthodoxy, whether in the context of drifting or apostasy, the doctrine of Christ, and specifically his position as great high priest, will factor into it. Because that, because that is the aspect of Jesus' person that makes him so personal, so relational, and so approachable. May God give us insight and wisdom as we administer his priesthood.